You are listening to the Worlding Podcast, where we explore the relationship of how we are both shaping and being shaped by our surroundings. The podcast traces interconnections by inviting each episode's guest to pass on the mic to someone who has influenced their world. And now, here's your host, dance artist Renee Schadler. Welcome to the Worlding Podcast. Today, I'm joined by dance artist Zwazi Meyers-Clark, who was recommended by Eula Fleel in our previous episode, which looked at different ways of sensing our world and drawing it closer. Zwazi, Eula told me you were one of her favorite people to talk to, so I'm really <laughs> looking forward to our chat. Nice. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you as well for the invitation. I'm also looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I have to tell listeners that Swazi and I had an amazing two-hour, like, very dense discussion preparing this podcast, and it went in all different directions about how welding intersects with his artistic practice and also Swazi's amazing journey of personal immigration from Jamaica to the United States and from the United States to Germany, where you are now, Swazi, in the south of Germany recording this episode. Yep. So, Ozzy, you're super busy, I notice, with a myriad of topics, including the everyday dress of racism, colonial nostalgia, and creating opportunities to move differently through your dance practice. How do you do that exactly? Um, <laughs> that's, that's like a really challenging question, I find. I guess... It's focusing on community gathering and care, I think, and figuring out what that can mean and look like in an organi organizational way, in a movement way, in a relationship between performers and audience, in a who gets to access the space, how to invite more people, how to make an invitation. Yeah, I think understanding and practicing com like how to gather as a community and how to give care to the people that show up and maybe even before they show up. <laughs> that's maybe where <laughs> where I what I focus on, what I think about uh in order to do that. Yeah, to create those spaces. I love that it's really somehow the micro gestures that then accumulate to deal with these very large and very dense topics that sometimes feel very impenetrable, I feel. Um, maybe you could share, Zwazi. I know we're going completely off our, our structure, but this amazing <laughs> image you shared of the dinner party, because I think this also like encapsulates this idea of care and gathering community really well. Oh, yeah, there's, I shared with Renee this image that, I don't know, it just popped up one day um, when I was trying to describe to someone how I want to relate to being inclusive or being more inclusive. Um, and I thought about the role of a host. I was like, yeah, when I make And when I make a dance performance or I make any sort of invitation where people can come and gather, it's like I'm hosting a dinner party. Like I'm a host and the dinner is 
is the dance piece. Um, and if I want to be, if I want, you know, everyone to have a nice night, um, of course, helpful is to ask each person that will attend or possibly attend their allergies or maybe even what kind of music they like or um, yeah, maybe wine if, if they're into wine or beer or any sort of preferences or maybe what time of day if they eat really late or eat really early so I can figure out what time would be best for everyone. Um, yeah, and then from there, I kind of make the choices of what playlist, <laughs> what playlist I'm going to make and whether I put a red or a blue fabric over all of my lamps for mood lighting. Um, and also, so I make food that, yeah, is tasty to everyone um, and also things that I like to cook um, and also, yeah is safe for everyone in regard to their allergies. And yeah, it's kind of with the, the feeling of being a host for a dinner party, it feels that sort of taking on that responsibility feels very relaxed and understandable to have that sort of responsibility. It doesn't feel like a burden or a labor to give that care, to give that consideration of people's wishes and also needs I guess that's the feeling I try to connect to and reproduce in myself um, as I do my thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I think when I like hosting dinner parties and that's always a role I really like. And I, and I think I like to think about doing the same thing as a choreographer, that it's kind of the same job in a way, the same tasks and considerations that I love that like yeah it makes me happy to be in that role um yeah I actually was very happy when Eula recommended you for this podcast because I know you personally I can also share that with listeners <laughs> and so it was nice that actually in offering this proposition for the Worlding podcast to be recommendation based and speakers to pass on the mic to someone that influenced their world. It was really beautiful to see your name come up again. And I think that's really a testament of how you really do that. You really care from a place of generosity where it doesn't feel like an obligation because often, I think especially in the arts, there's a lot of discourse around inclusion for people with different physical and intellectual abilities for different racial backgrounds. and. Yeah. It often is considered labor because it is work, you know, asking people um, what they prefer to eat or understanding if there's wheelchair access in a venue. Mm -hmm. Like it is a it is a labor, but how can it be seen from a place of giving and generosity and care rather than um, something that needs to be ticked like a box on a checklist? Exactly. I mean, I think even in terms of like, would you want to, the, the taste difference between when someone makes you a cake, by, like, and it's not store bought and the difference in that labor. And when you choose to do that for someone else, it, it, uh, it feels good. Like there's, there's something about that. Yeah. Feeling generous that, um, makes this labor a really sensual satisfactory thing uh 
I don't know, when you're like kneading the dough or then you like spill too much salt, but then you're like, ah, I guess it's more flavor. Like, whoops, like, I don't know, maybe I'll just add more sugar to help. I don't know. Um, but like, yeah, even like the failures of I'm not so good at making cake, but I really want to make this cake for my friend. Uh, yeah, you, you gladly do that labor. It, it's, um, yeah, it's really fulfilling and satisfying and just a nice thing to do um, for yourself and eventually for the other person. I also know, Zwazi, that you're caring at the moment for a few living creatures in your house that aren't necessarily human, which links um, back to the welding concept of noticing this reciprocal relationship of how we're shaping and being shaped by our surroundings, including the vegetal world, and you were sharing with me about your fermentation project. Could you tell listeners a little bit about that? Because I see that also as another form of caretaking. Yeah. Um, since the pandemic started um, in Germany, fermentation has been become my new hobby. And... It's a, it, I don't know, I'm completely fascinated by this, that you, I don't know, maybe you have some yogurt that you bought that's a glass jar and uh, you rinse it out and then you put in salt, water and vegetables um, to make pickled vegetables. And I don't know, depending on the fermentation, some of them you, you know, stir every single day or you release the gas that the bacteria kind of uh, yeah, in the process of fermentation release so that the glass bottle doesn't explode. And it's this kind of daily relationship and daily care and investment in the future. And even I, I think um, Sender Katz or I don't know, this really well-known fermentation uh, expert um, thinks about it as like a practice of hope even. Um because, of course, you're, like, taking care of this, you know, glass jar object uh, and with time and, you know, making sure the jar before is sterilized so the bacteria that you want to grow has a chance of doing that. I made some miso and that uh, took a year of, yeah, making sure it has a warm, cozy spot for the entire year as much as possible, even in winter, but not too warm. Um, cause then that will, that will also kill the mold that helps make that turn the beans into like the actual miso. And it's, it's a beautiful relationship to time and patience. I think that's, that's what it gives me. And otherwise there's like my plants and they kind of remind me about the outside I don't know making sure uh, yeah making sure I go outside once a day or noticing when it's more sunny or there's less sun when they like grow new leaves all of a sudden like four new leaves in one day or and then it makes me think oh okay I haven't really paid attention to the fact that yeah it has been really sunny and it was a really nice day yesterday because it was really bright and beautiful in a blue sky and I get reminded of that through noticing how my plants either shift their angle <laughs> with the way they send their leaves or, yeah, how many new baby leaves come out. 
within a day, yeah, it's it's nice spending time with them and <laughs> having them support me with having reminders about what's going on in my environment in terms of like, I guess the weather, uh, especially the amount of sunlight or how humid it is also, because I have ferns, so that really affects them, the humidity of the air. Yeah, because I don't think I'm practicing paying attention to it. So it's a, they're kind of the middle person for helping me notice those things. Mm, like a, a co-learning and cohabiting with these these different beings. I love that. Yeah. It also makes me think of a website I came across lately, <laughs> which is solar.lowtechmagazine.com. And I think we even were, were chatting about it because this website is solar powered and it means that it sometimes goes off. And I remember a few times I've gone to this website and it's been offline because it's nighttime where the server is for the website. And it was really shocking for me, actually. Like there's a huge frustration in the internet going to sleep <laughs> when, you, when you're when you like, ah, oh, but what do you mean? You're the internet. Um, and I think that's just a really nice idea also how these different... Um, I don't know even what you could call it really, like this natural world, if we're allowed to call it that, or if we feel comfortable with calling it that, mm -hmm. and then this technological world, and then this human world, which I think a lot of these podcasts have been about how they all flow in and out of each other, like how can you care for diverse human bodies and care for um, different living bodies, and then to care for technological bodies and also let them sleep. I think it's... Um, amazing and actually are we even letting them sleep or are we just moving out of the way you know and saying sure the sun's gone off <laughs> we're not going to interfere <laughs> you know it's really taking a step back um, yeah. and removing ourselves of this godlike uh human um tendencies that we've developed unfortunately over time i mean if i think about circadian rhythm like this you know waking up going to sleep waking up going to sleep thing uh and this website essentially having that because of the sun and i think oh normally i mean other websites of course like any time of day if i woke up at 2 30 in the morning like i could go onto soundcloud or something like this and listen to music but then i think about tech like technology is it or yeah right now it makes me think that technology is has a dependency just as much as I do on eating food and <laughs> drinking water and things like this, that, you know, a hydroelectric dam to produce electricity for a certain city or a certain town um, or where the servers are, <laughs> if we go to the servers <laughs> and where they're located, uh, that, I, that I almost think now, how can we presume that technology doesn't need a sort of circadian rhythm or doesn't need a rest because it it has some sort of dependency on other materials or other objects or other species um, or living living beings or animate beings uh, that maybe somewhere in there maybe the phone doesn't need to rest but the dam does, or I don't know, or the, or yeah, if we are interconnected, 
what does it mean for the communication of time and time of rest and time of activity? I guess that's kind of my point um, with my thinking right now. Yeah, totally. And also how, how long does this website need to be active or want to be active? And how can we get closer to understanding that? It feels to me like miso, for example, I have certain keys into, but a website I feel a little bit more removed to um, or removed from. And so, yeah, it's a question for me at the moment. I really appreciate welding in the in the materiality of things, but then how they operate past the materiality, I find incredibly open and unknown. So thank you for diving into that <laughs> like technological wormhole with yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> definitely a wormhole. I mean, now I'm of course just thinking in the moment, but it's like, yeah, this tracing practice maybe of this. Yeah, maybe it connects to, well, maybe a little bit to what we were talking about with the pencil story. <laughs> it's taking the object as is in like and isolating it doesn't make sense as soon as it becomes relational or you want to consider it as a relational thing as soon as you want to come into contact with. So, yeah, I mean, to tell the pencil story. <laughs> Please, I would really love to hear the pencil story. This is another one of Swazis and I's <laughs> chit-chats, but it's, it's, very, it's very on point, I would say. Okay. Yeah, this yeah, I think for multiple very theoretical things I I pare it down into like story metaphor things. Um this is a task uh that I was given when I was in elementary school in Jamaica by my teacher which I was so into. I I don't know why it was so important. <laughs> <laughs> to me, but I really worked hard on this task. Um, and we, the task was basically an English class and we had to practice essay writing. And the teacher gave us the topic of if I were a pencil, essentially. And I took that probably a little too much to heart <laughs> than what, <laughs> than what she intended but I, I wrote about my quote-unquote birth, um, the process of remembering what it was like to be a tree, what it was like to have a blade or a saw go through the base of my trunk, what it was like to be chopped into littler pieces and then littler pieces and then littler pieces and then shaved and then put a metal ring around the top and then like glued an eraser on top and then meeting Zwasi, <laughs> the human, um, who very aggressively erases um, when they do when they do something, when they make an error. Um, and it's really hurtful, uh, really painful. I was, yeah, I was writing a lot about how painful it is to be a pencil that the human or my owner I don't remember how I I mean I don't have it anymore but I think it was this sort of like kind of owner relationship um doesn't understand how painful it is that to to yeah to have have 
basically my head or be used as an eraser aggressively on the paper instead of like really lightly. And also, I was really sad because I realized the the more um, Zwasi would use me, quote unquote, the pencil as an eraser, I I would have to grieve the loss of a part of me, a part of my body that I would never get back. And I would also have a double grief because Zwasi would not consider this loss, would not care, would just continue to aggressively erase um, no matter what. Uh, (laughs) So I wrote this whole, I think it was probably at that age, probably just a page and a half essay. Um, But I was, I was really into it and I was really upset. And I remember looking after that assignment, I, I stopped erasing so aggressively and also considered when I would sharpen my pencil because it was taking another blade to its body. And it, I had just written about how many blade has, has come into contact with its body or bodies. <laughs> That's the seven-year-old. Wild. <laughs> I can imagine me. this little, little Swazi in, <laughs> oh in Jamaica. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the classroom. Yeah. <laughs> but to, to continue on, on what you're saying, I think it's so interesting because it kind of goes past this idea of anthropomorphism. So connecting the human experience to something else and imposing our human experience. You're, as a child, already kind of developing this idea of sensing through materiality. And I know also you studied as an engineer before you moved into contemporary dance. So there is really this almost like studying of an object as a way to get closer to it without causing it to be purely functional I think that's um yeah very nuanced work and also something I have to say there are lots of scholars working in this field and we're really approaching it from an artistic perspective so if any listeners are thinking oh oh no you can't say that please write to us um reneeshadler.com slash worlding and (laughs) assist Zwazi and I with our expansion of what worlding can be yeah I know that this podcast and often our beautiful chats was go in all different directions, but I would really love it if we could go now a little bit of a tangent to your current project around the Herenama genocide in Namibia in relation to German colonialism. It's a huge historical event and one that not many people are aware of, and you're really in there doing the work. And so I'd love if you could share a little bit about that event and also bringing it back to you and how that's shifting your understanding of your place in the world. Yeah. So maybe as background information first is that the Herero and Nama are two indigenous tribes that have lived and still, or yeah, have lived and still live in what is now Namibia. Although there are diasporas because of (laughs) German colonialism and definitely um, the genocide uh, caused them to flee. Um, And I have been 
as kind of the first part of the research, I've been conducting interviews um, with Herrera Nama persons that uh, live in Namibia, um, aren't part of the diaspora. And yeah, I, I, I ask a lot of questions and, and part of that um, is about their culture And their their relationship to land, especially in the context of colonialism, that it was dispossessed, um, yeah, during the time of Jordan colonialism, and how that ties in very strongly to their language, um, how they speak about the land, but also their relationship to land and identity, and how that is synonymous um, from my understanding. Um, of course, the complexity I, I don't yet grasp, um, but that's that's something that I've, um, yeah, become very curious about, um, especially in relation to yeah, this this being synonymous, this identity being synonymous with land that like there's this sort of um, overlapping um, between those things. It makes me curious for myself, um, being someone who is Jamaican and black and has an like, yeah, my uncle did or family tree and definitely, <laughs> definitely coming from, um, yeah, slaves uh, or enslaved peoples, um, forcibly enslaved um, and forcibly b brought to a different land um, at some point. And so that dispossession or that that disconnection of yeah, <laughs> I don't know how to say it. it's it's hard to find these words because I'm still formulating all these things for myself. So it's like uh, I mean, I said to Renee that it's I'm really in the middle of trying to figure out where I'm landing with these things. Um, but there's something about being it being impossible to figure out uh, through the archives where um, my ancestors come from, from the African continent. <laughs> um, and because of how the structure of settler colonialism and how that happened in Jamaica, that um, there was a lot of pressure to wipe out that the continuation of cultural practices um, among the enslaved people. So I'm now curious about figuring out again how to, or not even again, but maybe for the first time, consciously 
questioning what is identity and land as a diasporic person, both in the sense of not living in Jamaica anymore, diasporic also in the sense of my ancestors forcibly being removed from various parts of the African continent. Um, so how can I find identity within land when that has been taken away multiple times and also voluntarily with my move to Germany and um, have have them overlap um, when it's not a land that my ancestors grew on grew up on um, how I can form that relationship with, you know, the land that I'm on here in Rosrat, in NRW, in Nordrhein-Westfalen. Um, yeah, what kind of process that can be? And I, I don't really know yet. <laughs> it's just a very big, mm. big question of forming identity through land. And has that come from these conversations with the Haranaman people that has then caused this reflection on your personal journey? Was that something that you anticipated happening before you started in this work? Or it's kind of something that just unraveled during the process? I think it's something that unraveled during the process because I... I had never been exposed so intimately, you know, talking to people for hours, you know, each of them. Yeah, intimately to indigenous persons. Like, yeah, they were wiped up in Jamaica, so that doesn't really exist in Jamaica at all. Uh, the Spanish did that. And in the U.S., I also didn't expose myself, um, but also wasn't exposed um, because of the institutions um, that I was aligned with, uh, which are incredibly elite, and yeah, I won't even go there. And so it was really the first time kind of, yeah, being in relation to, yeah, this sort of like identity, identity, land, home, really being tied to, to a place rather than my sort of migratory background, which is like, yeah, my home is like my backpack, you know, and whatever can fit in there. Um, and this sort of like entirely different system of thought and culture, yet at the same time having it be so relational because of similar systems of colonialism that were enacted, that it was... it. I think it allowed um, new questions to come in when I when I noticed like wow you, yeah I've never I've never thought of those things or those were never conversations that we've had in Jamaica. I think it just kind of facilitated those moments to naturally happen um, just because of that new exposure. Mm, I would like to share. I also had quite a lot of exposure when I was growing up. It's funny, we go to these stories of when we were children. <laughs> but as you're talking, it reminds me, I actually grew up in an Aboriginal art gallery in Australia. So my mother was the owner of the gallery and our house was the gallery. So 
we had the living space and then a door and then the gallery in the middle and my mum's room at one end and my room at the other. And um, my mum was working a lot with communities on Mornington Island in Queensland in the northeast corner of Australia. And when she moved back down to Western Australia, where I grew up, she kept this connection through the gallery. So it was her way of staying connected and she would just offer the space in our house and we would have resident artists, so family members, um, kinship as um, she referred to my auntie Peggy, for example, Peggy Rockman, now Pajiri, who was Walpiri-speaking Indigenous artist from the Lajamanu community, which was the second posting my mum had gone to in the West Australian desert region. And it was there that I connected with auntie Peggy, who came down to actually run a corroboree um, as an offering. And thanks to my mum and gratitude in the gallery, and there was a smoking ceremony and I remember getting smoke in my eyes and and crying. <laughs> and I remember Annie Peggy just looked at me and said, we are land and land is us. <laughs> and there was no question like, yeah, you have smoke in your eyes because it's the wood and the wood is burning and it's affecting your body. But you are also the wood. And you also have bones. And one day you may also burn. You know, it was just like, yeah, sure, that's the way it is. There was like no question. So <laughs> in this sense, it's also like a another step of like dissolving even this relation of human and land. But actually, can we be the land? Can we shift our perception to see ourselves as land? Yeah, I, it just had it happened in my head. I was like, yeah, these are relational practices. This is... This is what we at least consider not in an isolationist sense. I think my first way in of like, okay, we are land. I was like, okay, how do you do that? <laughs> like, how does that work? And I was like, okay, bury in the ground. You know, I kind of, you get buried or, or burned and then you become smoke or ash and that falls or that gets eaten by a worm or an insect and that poops out soil and you're the soil and a bird shits a seed and then the seed becomes the tree and then, the, the you know, that becomes wood and then you burn. like, And not necessarily to say that it's cyclical, but there is a sort of relational process going on that is happening in different time spans that, yeah, like... Every day I, I see the my leaves change or shift depending on if they need water or the so soil getting dry or uh, yeah needing to water it <laughs> uh, or leave changing because of the sunshine and I can take part in that and my even in the sense of a phone the decomposition of that takes generations like I must relate to it almost not in terms of ancestrally but like in terms of like my great 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 grandchildren or something like this and I must relate to a phone that way because that's how this sort of decomposition that's the time of the decomposition that's the time of the relational transformation when I think about how I can communicate with the phone that maybe that's something to consider 
through multiple generations rather than just as one person. <laughs> to be really like weird about it, but I don't know. That was just a thought of like why me as one person I can more easily relate to a plant into my fermentation that takes a year or a month as opposed to sensing time um, with the material of a phone or plastic. And how much time do you need to be in and with to understand yourself as land and land is us? Like... (laughs) So stop crying! Because that is, again, a long time, you know? Yeah, because then the bone decomposes and, you know, we do so much to prevent that. We create coffins, we find ways to preserve or we have a cremation and we speed up the process Mm. because perhaps it's difficult to comprehend. So, um, yeah, we slide into life and death, Swazi. It's (laughs) it's another topic and I feel like I can totally understand why Yula said that you're her favourite person to talk to (laughs) because this meandering, worlding um, (laughs) space is endless. But I I would love to to come towards the end if you could Mm. leave listeners with an a way of experiencing your research. And we've been kind of skating across different facets of that research um, during this conversation. But is there is there kind of one thing you could, um, yeah, really dive into with the listener that we could experience your, your world at the moment? I thought of two things to share, and maybe I'll share both, because, you know, people have preferences. <laughs> yeah. When you feel ready, take a moment to, to go outside and, and find a plant creature and trace it with your, your fingers and your eyes. And if you want to get really nerdy about it, like, like, like me, read about kind of the, you know, how our blood is pumping, um, throughout our bodies, understanding what's going on inside the plant and try and sense that. Yeah, stay stay with it a while and just spend time noticing another another creature and what it's what it's busy with. And enjoy that kind of being curious about another. Um, yeah, that would be kind of one thing. <laughs> I was doing that a lot. <laughs> this very mossy, this weird little moss plant thing area that I that I found and I got curious about it. The second thing I thought of was to Yeah, in your daily going about if you find a plant or tree or even object, doesn't really matter, any material um, that you feel resonates with you or you like it or you're curious about it. Um, Depending how big it is or small it is, either hold it in your hands or sit across from it. Maybe it's somewhere you can't even access. It's through a fence so you can just look at it. Um, But find yourself in relation to it in some way. Um, and 
kind of not necessarily speak in the sense of words um, but pretend as if it is an ancestor of, your, of yours beyond your grandparents or even great-grandparents maybe a generation ahead of that let your thoughts flow um, just hold that intention in your head and just let the thoughts flow for as long as you wish that would be my my other <laughs> my other proposal or, or gift yeah oh it's definitely a gift <laughs> I'm even just talking to you at the moment um, <laughs> and unable to go outside but just caressing a pot plant on my desk in my office and I've never thought about it as an ancestor I think it's a beautiful way to weave together lots of different elements of our conversation and sit in them for a while. I even suggest actually that listeners, if you feel like it, this is a great podcast to listen to twice. <laughs> I'm going to listen to it many times. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of learning and please, yeah. please write to us. I think Swazi and I are also on the cusp of many things always. Yeah. And happy happy to connect we both work with interconnection and um happy to listen and share knowledge in any way yeah it's funny because usually I, I or i think renee was like yeah a thing that they can do and i was like i think with for my love of fermentation it's really about um yeah doing things over time so i i i, I super um happy of Renee's suggestion of listening to it enough, uh, more than once or doing the task more than once because, yeah, really investing in the future, investing in hope, investing in as fermentation, as uh, spending time with your projected ancestor, spending time getting to know this moss corner that you get really curious about because it's so fuzzy. <laughs> Beautiful. And Zwazi, you are number two <laughs> in this string of interrelations. And I'm curious to know who you will pass on the microphone to next to continue this this journey from Eula to yourself and to bum bum bum. <laughs> I will be passing on the quote unquote mic to Julia Mesker Traber, who is one of my yeah another another one of like great conversationalists but also for some reason yeah just a sentence from her I find is constantly inspiring me um yeah it's, and I find her incredibly inspiring <laughs> so that's why I was like maybe maybe for 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 y'all um there can be something there for you too to share Thank you so much for chatting to us and all the best with your fermentation projects and this amazing project. Thank you. And research. It was really a pleasure. Yes. And have a wonderful day. You too. And everyone out there, have an awesome day. Thank you for listening to The Worlding Podcast. Gefördert durch die Beauftragte der Bundesregierung für Kultur und Medien im Programm Neustart Kultur. Hilfsprogramm des Tanzen des Dachverband Tanz Deutschland. <lacht>